Well, uh, when I was in high school, um, one of my closest friends and I were driving past a, a Planned Parenthood. And uh, out front of the Planned Parenthood, they had a group of protesters that were standing out front. Now, this friend of mine, um, who I had known all of my life, uh, claimed to know Jesus and frankly was much more involved in church and the things of God than I was at this point in my life. We began a discussion um, about whether protesting out front of abortion clinics was the best way of ending abortion, of bringing an end to abortion. And as we were driving down the road and we, we left that spot, he looked at me and he said, Tim, you know, I don't believe in abortion, but if my girlfriend gets pregnant, I would encourage her to have one. And I remember sitting there somewhat shocked and I said, well, then you do believe in abortion. And he went on to explain why he couldn't go through the, the shame or the, the, the discouragement of uh, his parents or uh, working through this. And, but I remember just listening to all of it and going, man, like your belief actually, you've tricked yourself into believing one thing, thinking that you believe one thing, but your actions tell a different story. Well, the conversation continued, but his mind remained unchanged. And the question that I have for us this morning is, do you have beliefs that when pressed against with sacrifice that is going to cost you something, buckle? Does the belief that you hold buckle under pressure? This morning, we're going to continue in our series in the Gospel of Luke. And what we're going to see is that belief is not simply an intellectual process, but it's one in which our conviction leads to active commitment. So let's go ahead and stand this morning. We're going to be looking at Luke. It's a small section of Luke, Luke chapter 9, verses 17 through, 20, or excuse me, verses 18 through 27. And I want to encourage you to follow along, and this is what it says. Now it happened that he was, as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Lord, as we look at your word this morning, may we genuinely understand what it means 
to confess you as the Messiah. God, may we not be confused by this. May we not believe lies that have been told. But God, may we embrace the totality of your truth. Father, if there is someone here today that has yet to repent and believe on you, I pray that today would be the day. I pray that eyes would be opened. Father, I pray that in our own hearts and minds, areas where we believe and say we believe in you, but we, we aren't trusting you, we aren't seeking you first, may you expose those areas in our own hearts this morning. May we submit them to you. Lord God, may we genuinely confess you as Messiah, experiencing all of the blessing of salvation, not a work of ourselves, but solely a work of you. Bring us understanding of your truth this morning. Move me out of the way. Find any work of the enemy that looks to disrupt, distract, destroy, devour. In the name, your name, Jesus. May your spirit move freely amongst us this morning. And we ask this in your name. Amen. Following Jesus requires us to confess him not only as Savior, but as Lord of our lives. Following Jesus requires us to confess him not only as Savior, but as Lord of our lives. We're confessing Jesus as Savior and as Lord. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Not simply that you confess him as Savior, and not simply that you confess him as Lord, but that you confess him as Savior and Lord. Now, isn't it interesting that in this passage, it begins with Jesus praying alone? This should actually gain our attention. Jesus prayed regularly, but it isn't always mentioned in Scripture. The previous time that Luke mentions Jesus praying alone was prior to the calling of the 12 disciples in chapter 6. It's always remarkable to see that when Jesus is praying alone, there is something remarkable that follows. And it's no different here. His call for us right here is to listen, to hear what he has to say. And so Jesus has gone out to pray by himself following the feeding of the 5,000. Now, we don't know exactly if this was the day afterwards. We don't know if it was the same week. We assume it's close and in proximity. But Jesus has gone out to pray alone. And he's gone to pray alone after he's fed the 5,000. And his question then makes sense in verse 18 when he says, And he asked his disciples who had joined him, Who do the crowds say that I am? And we're told that they answered John the Baptist, but others say Elijah and others, that one of the prophets of old has risen. Think about that for a minute. 
They're struggling to see Jesus as the Messiah, yet they have no problem seeing that one of the prophets old may have risen from the dead. Isn't that interesting? It's interesting even in our own world, isn't it? If you were to ask people that question, who do you say Jesus is? And some of the answers you get, you look at and you respond with, not in a prideful way, but in a truthful way of, it takes more faith to believe that than it does to believe in Jesus. Then Jesus says to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answers, the Christ of God. See, each of us must answer this question. And how you answer this question will shape your life and your eternity. To this day, some believe that he is just a mythical figure, while others believe him to be a great prophet. More commonly, people see him as a good moral teacher. They no longer deny his existence. They just remove what he said about his existence and about who he was from his existence. However, Jesus doesn't make any of those claims. He he doesn't make the claim that he is simply a great prophet. He, He doesn't make the claim that he's just a good moral teacher. What he does say is the claim that changes our lives, which is, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me, in John 14, 6. His claim is direct, it's clear, and you either have to reject it or accept it. But it's no place in the middle. C.S. Lewis said, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else he's a madman or something worse. But it's amazing, right, that we can make Jesus into our own eyes, right? Into our own image. Yesterday I was at a funeral The pastor that was sharing made a a comment that he started off with and was wonderful. And he just started it this way. He got up as the sharing was done and public sharing, and he just started his message this way. He said this. He said, we often say that somebody's in a better place. We better be careful. Because some of you will be going to a better place. But for some of you, this is the best place. And we need to not make you secure in believing that there is a better place for you if you have rejected Jesus. Bold. Right to the point, right? That's the truth that Jesus is getting at. He's actually wanting his disciples to confess him as Lord to show them that now they're beginning to see that he is the Messiah. And what his 
what his, his question is doing is exposing their heart. And so Peter answers on behalf of the disciples this question of who do you say that I am? And Peter responds on their behalf and says the Christ or the Messiah of God. That's what he's saying. We acknowledge you as a Savior. So following Jesus then begins with our confession of him as God's Messiah. We can't be a follower of Jesus without that. When somebody says, I follow Jesus, but they reject Jesus as the Messiah, they are no follower of Jesus. They are a follower of an idol that they have presented in front of them by which they call the name Jesus, but is not Jesus who is revealed in Scripture. And so following Jesus begins with our confession of him as God's Messiah. And there's two parts of this confession. The first we see in verse 21 and 22, which is that it's believing that Jesus suffered, died, and was raised on the third day, that he is the Savior. Believing Jesus suffered, died, and was raised on the third day, he is the Savior. Verse 21 and 22, it says, And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one. Now, this is not a universal charge. He's not saying, hey, Corey, you heard the gospel, never share it with anybody. That's not what he's saying. This is because they are beginning to understand who the Messiah is. His mission, that is Jesus' mission. Jesus is correcting their understanding of who the Messiah is. And in the process, continuing to teach them about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And the time has not yet come for that to be fully disclosed. Now, Jesus' declaration here would have rocked their understanding of the Messiah. See, they thought the Messiah was going to come to Israel, restore it, and bring victory over their enemies. The thought that he would have to die and then rise again was shocking. In fact, we know from Scripture that they struggled with this. We know from other accounts in the Gospels that Peter basically says, Jesus, that will never happen. And Jesus turns to Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. And he wasn't calling Peter, literally saying, hey, Peter, you're, you're, you're the devil. But in essence, he was. He was saying, listen, that's a lie. Just because you want it to be true doesn't make it true. And that's true about our own faith. Just because we want something to be true doesn't make it true. Just because we want following Christ to be an easy thing with an easy life doesn't mean that's what he's called us to. God did not promise you comfort. He did not promise you a spouse. He did not promise you children. He did not promise you to be free of disability. He did not promise you to be free of suffering. What he promised you was that he would be your comfort, that he would be your joy, and that he would be present with you so that you might be strengthened in him. You see, you can understand here in a moment why Peter in this moment and the disciples would have been simply hearing and what they would have heard would have been shocking. 
Now, it would have been easy for them to say, listen, I'm out of here. You are not the Messiah that I thought you were. And it would have been easy to try to make Jesus into an image that they wanted. But they believe him. They believe. How do we know they believe? Because they don't run. They don't run away. Acts 3, verses 18 through 21 says, But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Jesus did die. He went to the cross for our sake. He took the weight of that penalty, which was ours, death. That's the penalty of sin. And he bore that on the cross, and he shed his blood for our forgiveness. He died in our place. But here's the thing. He was no dead Messiah. He was no dead king, and he was no dead savior. He was raised on the third day. And that's what we believe. That's what we're believing in, is that we don't serve a dead savior, but we serve a risen savior. And it is the belief that Jesus was raised from the dead. That's what we're confessing. Oh, it's easy to confess Jesus who didn't rise again. Yeah, he's a great historical figure. But the distinction is that he rose from the dead, that God raised him from the dead. Do you believe that? That's what you're confessing when you say you believe in Jesus. You're confessing that God raised Jesus from the dead for our sake that we need a savior, that our sin needs to be put down. It needs to be paid for, and Jesus did that work. John three sixteen through 18 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Probably the most quoted scripture, right? We see it even at football games. Probably see some today. But verse 17 and 18 is actually vital to this. It says, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. But catch this. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. So he came into the world, what? Not to condemn the world. And so he's saying, Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but listen who is. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. It's easy to sometimes look at John 3.16 and just say, hey, God's a God of love. Oh man, he didn't come in to condemn the world. You're right. He didn't send him in to condemn the world because the world was already condemned. That's what it means. Our sin, the wage of sin is death. 
We were already condemned. We were headed towards a path of total destruction and totally eternal death. And Jesus intervenes because God sends him son into the world. And so he sends him into the world to save the world. That's what he does. He interrupts this life of condemnation, of destruction, of death. He interrupts that, dies and pays the penalty for our death. And for all those who repent and believe, we experience salvation in him. Isn't that freeing? Doesn't it change your view of Jesus here? It's not that Jesus came to condemn, it's that we were already condemned. Jesus came into the world that we might be saved, that we might be redeemed. However, confessing Jesus as Messiah is not just a decision here, it's a commitment. And our belief not only moves our hearts and minds, but it also moves our action. We are called to be followers of Jesus, not simply fans of Jesus. And so, it's with this next portion of Scripture that actually is the portion of Scripture that radically changed my life. It was a man who came into my life and he took this part of Scripture and he said, I want you to memorize Luke 9.23. Now, I had grown up in the church. Family was in ministry. But the truth is, there was no life in me. I had made a profession of faith as a seven-year-old, completely motivated out of fear. I knew I didn't want to go to hell. That's what I knew. But I also know that my life from that moment on did not reflect the nature and character of God. And it was not met with a desire to actually pursue him. The language, frankly, of accept Jesus in your heart was completely, utterly confusing to me. It's actually found nowhere in Scripture. The language that Jesus uses is repent and believe. That's what he says. It's not just accepting its gift. It's actually believing on Christ, confessing him as the Messiah, of which believing is one part of that. But our believing is, yes, an acknowledgement that he is raised from the dead. But it's also something more. We're not simply confessing him as Savior, but we're confessing him as Lord. That he is the Lord of our life. That's the totality of belief. That he was raised and that he is Lord. And so the second part of our confession then, the first part being a believing portion of the resurrection of Jesus, the second part is actually surrendering our lives for Jesus' life because he is Lord. It's surrendering our lives for Jesus' life. 
So when we confess Jesus, what we're saying is this. When we're confessing Jesus as the Messiah, we're saying, yes, Jesus, I believe that you are Savior, that you died for my sake and you rose from the dead. And I also, Lord, believe that you are the Lord of my life and I am surrendering my life to you for your sake. Do you see how those go hand in hand together? That the belief is encompassed? Belief was never meant to be separated from the commitment and the action that we had. But our culture has separated that. We live in a culture that constantly says we believe one thing and doesn't do another thing. And the truth is, if that's the case, we really don't believe it. Because belief actually is at the very essence of who we are. It's at the essence of our own heart. It's why in Romans 10, 8 through 10, it says, but what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. What was it again? If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. This isn't adding something to this belief. It is the belief that what I confess about Christ is also not simply that he is savior, but that he is also king. I am acknowledging that I need him as king. I'm acknowledging that I need him as savior. Now, how do we deny ourselves? What does it actually mean? How do we surrender ourselves for Christ? Well, he says here, deny yourself. That means to reject all sinful desires of our flesh, no matter how natural it feels. Reject all sinful desires of our flesh, no matter how natural it feels. Here's hope. We live in a world where identity now has become sexuality. When we speak of these things, right, in our culture today, you ask somebody how to identify themselves, we live in a culture where it is crazy. I mean, I don't ever recall, truthfully, 50 years ago, if I were to ask Mike who he was, he would say, I'm a man. By the way, I'm a man and I'm straight. You know what he identified himself by? He'd say, you know what? This is what I do. This is who I am. I'm a husband. I'm a father. I'm a mechanic. But it was never this identity that was through something like our sexuality. And by doing so, what happens when we make sin an identity we feel that there's no hope against that sin. Whether it's heterosexual lust or homosexual lust, whether it's gossip, whether it's greed, whether it's fear of man, what he's saying here is whatever sin you wrestle with that feels so distinctly natural to you, he's saying, deny yourself. Reject it. 
Don't believe the lie that it's always there and that it will always be there. Your life is not your life. It's Christ. That's what he's saying. And there is hope. There's hope in that because that which feels so natural to us, God is reminding us that it is found and rooted in the fallen nature of man. And as believers, we are now a new creation. We are no longer slave to that nature. And this is what I would encourage you with today. If there is somebody who is struggling with same-sex attraction, or they're struggling with heterosexual lust, and it's a power that doesn't seem to go away. If you are struggling with gossip, and it's a power that doesn't seem to go away. If you're struggling with the fear of man, and it's a power that doesn't go away. Reject it. Look at it and reject it. It does not define you. If you are a new creation in Christ, your identity is Jesus. Reject it. Look at Christ and say, Christ, as hard as this battle is going to be, I trust that you will give me new desires, holy desires. You will sanctify my heart. And so that surrender begins by us acknowledging that we are not defined by our sin. And our sin no longer defines us. The only reason it defines us is if we allow it to define us. But we have to first come to the, the commitment that we are going to deny ourselves of it. I think what happens too often is we dance with our sin. It's kind of like a junior high dance. If you're not good at it, you don't get on the dance floor. But as soon as the slow dance comes, everybody can slow dance. And so you just kind of let the sin trickle out there a little bit. And you say, yeah, I ought to deny it. And most of the time I think I can and I do. But there's a little bit of it that you love. That's not denial. That's still hanging on to a little bit of goodness that you see, which is actually not goodness at all. See, denying self means that I actually cut it off. That's what he's saying. You are making a break and saying, this is no longer good. But Jesus is. Then he says, take up your cross. And I think this is important that we understand this because taking up our cross is not sin that is present in our life. The cross that you have to bear is not the sin. The sin that he's talking about and he's dealing with is actually denying self. The cross that you have to bear is this idea of sacrificing your will for his will. It's trading off and saying, your way is better. So I cut off sin and I say that, I don't want to have any more relationship, not even a slow dance relationship with this sin. And I'm going to have sacrifice. I'm coming in and I'm going to sacrifice my will, my desires, and I'm going to give it, and I'm going to give it for the sake of the Lord to the Lord. 
and now Christ's life is going to be who I follow. His will is going to be what I follow. That's what it means to take up his cross daily. And there's a uniqueness to this. He's actually encouraging us to do this on a day-to-day basis because unless we don't, right, unless we do, rather, we won't actually walk out his will. There's something unique about the cross-bearing here. In the Roman Empire, we know actually from Jesus and his crucifixion that the victim was often, or the criminal was often, forced to carry the cross for at least half of the way, for part of the way. They would strap that cross on. And as they strapped that cross on, they did that for the purpose of the city to see what had actually taken place, and it was supposed to give the criminal time to basically accept the fact and admit that their punishment was right. In many ways, what Jesus is having us do here is he's having us identify with him. When we change and sacrifice our will for his will, what we are doing every time we do that, we are looking at the Lord saying, you are right, God. I am not. My life is not about me. My life is about you. Every time that we take up that cross, every time that we look at and say, God, this situation stinks. Or in the words of my son this morning, this situation sucks. Right? He's got that word for me, because I say that a lot. The truth is that when we look at a situation that we'd much rather be out of and look at it and say, God, but not my will, your will. That's taking up our cross. When we say, I no longer in this situation, it would be easy to jump in and gossip in this situation. It would be easy to have a critical spirit in this situation. And we step away from it and say, God, but not not my will, your will, God. That's taking up our cross every single day. And that's the decision we have to make. Who today are we going to serve? I remember many years ago sitting with a a man, a a friend at lunch. He was part of the ministry that I was in, and I just noticed some things in his life that were way out of balance. And truth be told, they had been neglecting the gathering for months because of kids' soccer and kids' softball and different things. And as he was sitting there, he he's asking some questions. And it just came up, and I shared with him. I, he asked, what do you see in my life? So I shared with him. He said, you're going to have to come to a point in your life where you decide who you're going to serve. Have you decided to serve Jesus, or are you going to decide to serve yourself? The lunch left well, and he went home and thought about it for a little bit, and then he became really angry. And he was angry for a number of weeks. And then he ended up writing me back. He said, thanks for asking me that question. And I loved his answer because it wasn't the answer I wanted. But his answer was, I don't know. 
But I'm so grateful you asked me that question because it's forcing me to deal with what I want. And the truth is, is it did not lead to transformation in this man's heart or in his life. But each of us must answer that question. Who do we choose to serve today, every day? Am I going to serve Tim or am I going to serve God? Am I going to serve Robin or are going to serve God? Danny or God? That's taking up our cross every day. It's why in 1 Corinthians 15, 31, Paul says, I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. He dies to his will for the sake of Jesus' will so that they might be ministered to, that the gospel might go forth. And then he says, follow me. And follow me here, we know the only way to follow Jesus is simply to submit to him. And so if we want a simple way of putting surrender, it's to reject, sacrifice, and submit. Reject that which seems natural in sin, sacrifice our will for his, and submit to Jesus and his leading. 1 Peter 5, 6 says, Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. We come with humility before the Lord. So then why should one confess and follow Jesus as the Messiah? There's three reasons that he gives here, and we'll move through these relatively quickly. The first, he says in verse 24 and 25, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? This language is actually quite strong. Loses and forfeits is a total rejection of self, meaning he's lost everything. What he's saying here, in essence, is that we need to understand that our confession is one that is marked by confessing him as the Savior and marked by confessing him as Lord. And he's saying that if we don't confess him as Lord, we are forfeiting our salvation. That's big. That's big. So what do we have here? Why should one confess and follow Jesus as Messiah? Because it brings eternal and abundant life. Eternal and abundant life. What is gained? Life is gained. John 10.10 says, The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. 1 John 2.28 continues, And now little children abide in him, so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. We abide in Jesus. It's not just life eternal. And I think that's one of the reasons that so often when we present the gospel to people, it's not all that appealing. Because Jesus always presented the gospel not as just simply one of eternal life, but one of abundant life. He's saying you can have abundant life now. You can experience his hope, his joy, his peace now. You can walk with him as your leader You ever had a boss that just makes things easy? That's a joy to work for? When you find them, you don't want them to leave. 
and they're usually good enough that they always do. Right? Jesus is the best leader you'll ever have, and he'll never leave you. And you can trust him. As you follow him, he takes you into the place where you have abundant life. We need to see salvation as not just about eternity, but also about this life, his leading, his glory. And we have abundant life here now. The second reason is that it brings honor, brings the honor of God rather than the judgment of God. It brings the honor of God rather than the judgment of God. Notice what he says here in verse 26, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. It brings the honor of God. The opposite of being ashamed here is to be esteemed. When we surrender our life for Christ's life, he esteems us. And the language here when he's talking about that he is ashamed is that he will be ashamed at the day of judgment of which you will face or that each one of us will face who choose to reject him and his lordship in their life. That's what he's saying. Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. I think this is one of the biggest things. I fear that, and I add myself in this as I say this, that the times when we pull off sharing the gospel, when we should be sharing the gospel, and bold with it. This funeral that I was at yesterday was a man who'd been in ministry the last 13 years. He'd been in prison 29 years before that. 22 on a stint that went from a two-year prison stint to a 22-year prison stint because of violence that took place in jail. And you can imagine what that violence was. 1996, he made the decision on his birthday to take his own life. And the days before his birthday, Gideon's came by and threw a green little Bible into his cell. And he began reading that Bible. And as he said, he said typically in his life, what he would do is he would roll, rake, tip, rip out the pages of the Bible, roll it up, and smoke dope. But he said this day, God's word smoked him. He ended up giving his life to Jesus, and it was transformative. And he started a ministry to many of these men who had been in prison, and women that had been in prison, leading them to the Lord. And the testimony that I heard yesterday, and I had only met him a few times, but the testimony that you heard consistently from people yesterday was his desire to share the love of Jesus with people. And what they said is, he'd tell you about Jesus if if you didn't want to hear about Jesus. I think for many of us, there's a place for tact and wisdom and discernment. 
But I think for many of us, we default to the statement of discernment and wisdom as not now. When we need to be saying, now is the time. The invitation is to repent and believe. Matthew 24, 30 says, Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes on earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming out of the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. When we do this, when we surrender our lives for his sake, at his return, there will be honor. There will not be judgment. But for those who reject his lordship and their life, there will be judgment. The third reason is it allows us to experience God's kingdom now and in glory. Now and in glory. Jesus told them, but I tell you truly, there are some standing here who would not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Two things here that we need to understand about this. Jesus was motivating them with the kingdom of God. He was saying to them, listen, follow me, confess me as Messiah, because you will see the kingdom of God if you do. And what's happening in this picture here is that two things happen. We know now that Jesus went to the cross. He died and he rose again, and we experience that glorious relationship with him through faith through confession of him as Savior and Lord. They themselves didn't have yet that, have that. But he told them that some of them would see the kingdom of God before they tasted death. Before they died, some of them would see it. And the truth is that all of the disciples there, with the exception of Judas, did. In fact, three of them in the week to follow saw it when Jesus, next week, will see that passage, that text of the transfiguration of Jesus. They get a glimpse of his glory. But then they get to see his glory through his death and resurrection and his ascension. That's his promise to you. When you confess him as Messiah, when you believe that he was raised from the dead, and you surrender your life for his life as Lord, you will see the kingdom of God. That's his promise. You will experience not in its fullness today, but you will experience it in part today. His hope, his joy, his peace, his presence, his loving kindness, his mercy, his grace, you will experience. And upon his return, and upon your death, you will experience new life in him in total glory. You will experience life eternally and abundantly forever. Hebrews 2.9 says, But we see him for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. We will never taste eternal death if we confess Christ as the Messiah. And if we confess Jesus as the Messiah. So may it be, as Colossians 3, 1 through 4 says, 
If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. May his glory be our motivation to confess him as Messiah. And may we do it believing that he was raised from the dead and surrendering our life for his life as Lord. May it be so. Let's pray. Lord God, this morning, may we understand that our salvation is a work that you have secured for us on the cross. Your call to us is that we might repent and believe, that we might confess you as the Messiah. Lord, allow us to see our sin and our need for you. Open our eyes, Father, to the areas where we are still living for self. And may we surrender those areas, deny those areas, sacrifice our will for your will, and may we follow you. May it be the confession of our heart, Lord. We know that we won't do it perfectly, but it may it be the confession of our heart that you are both our Savior and our Lord this morning. And we ask these things in your name. Amen.